Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, uh, Homebrew All-Stars, and, of course, Simple Homebrewing coming out this spring, 2019. So get on it, pre-order it, do what you need to. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, first we have to say, Happy New Beer! <laughs> yeah, right. Or old beer, but old beer in a new year. Exactly. And so, on this first episode of the New Year's, we're actually going to dig into a couple things. We've got some feedback on our last episode. We've got, of course, the brewery news and the pub life, because even though... Things may be shut down for the holidays, in more ways than one. There's still a lot of beer news going on. We'll go revisit an old article all about numbers in the brew house. Uh, go talk a little bit about our brewing experiences over the holidays. And then, of course, in the lounge, we are going to talk all about the Long Beach Homebrew Fest and how a community organization is putting on a homebrew fest and what they feel it does, and also dig into some recipes. And then, of course, quick tip, something other, and we're going to get you out of here. No Q&A today because, well, we need your questions for the Q&A episode. That's right. Q&A episode coming up real soon, so send your questions to experimentalbrew.com. And before we get going on all of that stuff, please kick back and take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew. Makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion. Beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages from these fine, fine people who bring us this fine, fine program. Remember, if you talk to them, let them know you heard them here on Experimental Brewing so they know that they're spending their money well. And speaking of other things, Experimental Brewing, don't forget last week, day after Christmas, we actually released an episode, Brew Files, episode 52, all about getting back to brewing. And we've had a lot of good feedback on this and we'll get into it. But the whole episode is all about the things that we think keep us from brewing and just how do we get around them. 
And we want to remind you that March 22nd and 23rd, we will be at the Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Asheville, North Carolina, along with our friend Marshall Schott. We're going to be teaching a class on homebrew experimentation. So uh, if you guys want to learn about that and a lot of other great stuff, there are people like uh, Josh Weikert, Gordon Strong, geez, uh, too many to even remember, who will be there teaching different classes and different things. You can sign up for it by going to byobootcamp.com, and uh, when you do, put in the code word experimental, and that will help out the show a bit. And uh, we hope to see you there. It should be a lot of fun in Asheville. It sounds like just a great beer city, huh? sounds like a great beer city. It sounds like a a beer city in the middle of magic. (laughs) It sounds kind of like Oregon on the East Coast. Maybe. Now, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, brewswag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Well, we don't know yet. We finished collecting money for NowZad last month, and I'll get you a total on that on the next show. And we're looking for a new charity for all of you guys and us to help out. So if you have some ideas for one, shoot us an email at experimentalbrew.com and let us know about a charity that you think would be good. Well, we kind of prefer something that isn't real local to you, uh, something that is uh, more of what everybody can relate to. But we're just looking for any kinds of ideas. So uh, send us some ideas for a charity, and we'll be thinking about it, too. And now it's time for Feedback. feedback. He did it again. I did. Lots of comments on the internet uh, from people about uh, last week's Brew Files episode that we just mentioned, talking about the getting back to brewing, because it turns out that in the New Year's, uh, yeah, it's kind of an important topic to try and tackle, like, why am I not brewing as much as I want to be, because everybody says I'm going to brew more. And if you follow me on Facebook, you'll sometimes spot a possible upcoming episode, because I asked questions about this on my Facebook feed, got a ton of responses. Which, of course, then prompted uh, Jeff Gladish of, uh, out there in Tampa to ask, once we had posted the episode, if this would have been why I was asking about uh, people dealing with burnout. And I naturally responded that, yeah, we wanted to make sure that we had covered all of our bases, and we didn't, and we'll get there. Which netted his response of, and we all thought you had a personal problem. Which <laughs> just begs for all sorts of responses, including one from Denny. Now, on the actual topic of the show... Listener Aaron McFellberg, he wrote in to say, listening to the reasons people brew on your recent episode, I wanted to add that my motivation for brewing is constantly learning new styles and techniques. The reason I will brew for decades to come is that there is no limit to what I can learn in this hobby. To which I say, it's a good point. We did miss the education uh, piece as a motivator, uh, but I will also say that fallow periods will hit us all. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. At at some point, you might not even feel... Motivated enough to go learn anything. And like we said, that's okay. Wait till you are. Yep. But in the meanwhile, if you want to go and figure out how to get back to brewing, go listen to that episode. I think you'll enjoy it, and hopefully you'll get as much out of it as we did in writing it. Now, Denny, I think it's time for us to go have a beer. I think so, too. So stick around. We're going to head over to the experimental brew. We're going to head over. I'll see if I can uh, talk. So stick around while we head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and we'll be right back. 
This winter welcomes our private collection strains for the first quarter of 2019. Inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix and available exclusively at Y-East. Our 1217 West Coast IPA, 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain, and 2352 Munich Lager II provide balanced characteristics for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Whatever your plans may be for brewing, we hope to inspire new seasonal traditions with crisp, drinkable beers among the rich stouts and barrel-aged behemoths during these colder months. These strains are available January through March at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Welcome back. We're sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever you are. And we're drinking a couple beers. Uh, Drew, you have something a little bit exotic there, huh? Well, I have something a little old and exotic. I have a brewery batch one, Loved, uh, which was when the brewery first opened the doors, the brewery down in Placentia. So B-R-U-E-R-Y. They had a homebrew competition uh, to say, okay, well, what's going to be our first beer that we're going to make? And you know, the beer that ended up winning was a clone of Duval, hence Loved. Um, and they rebrewed this beer one, one other time, and I have actually the beer in front of me as one of the rebrewed bottles because, yeah, that, there's no more batch one left anymore. But it is not exactly spot on to Duval, but it's pretty damn close and a pretty damn tasty drink out of a big dang glass. So, cheers, <laughs> happy holidays, happy new year, time to have a little devil. I'm having one of our uh, traditional Pacific Northwest winter beers here, a Pyramid Snowcap. And I just, you know, I look forward to this beer every year. It's, it's always good, and some years are outstanding, and as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the outstanding years. It's a uh, dark beer made with two-row Munich uh, caramel and chocolate malts, uh, around 7% ABV, 47 IBUs, and it uses Nugget, Willamette, and East Kent Golding hops in it. And this beer is just delicious. It's a, a really nice balance of the malt sweetness with just enough hot bitterness so it doesn't seem cloying. Great sipper in the Pacific Northwest winter. If you have access to it, check it out. I can honestly say I don't think I've had a snow cap in at least 
five years. You know, it was it was kind of one of my first clone recipes that I tried to come up with. Uh, you know, a, a copy of Snowcap many years ago. I, I brewed it like in January or February when we had two full moons. So it was a blue moon, and I called mine Blue Moon Ale without realizing that there was a crappy kind of whip beer out there already that had that name. Well, now that we've got beer uh, in hand, I think it's time that, well, to get fortified because we've got to break down into some business. And first piece of business comes from our good friend Terry, uh, Terry Ferendorf, who has been around the industry for a good long while. And, well, Denny, you, you, you found an incredible rant, rave, ramble. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like all three at once. Uh, Terry put out her predictions for 2019 uh, in an article on her Facebook page. And I immediately grabbed it because she's been around for a long time and has a lot of insight and covered a lot of territory in this article. Uh, she started off by saying, coming to a pub near you soon, the inebriation beverage industry, which is kind of the way she encapsulates all the various changes and things that she's talking about in, uh, in this article. She starts off by saying, uh, it's no secret that overall beer sales are down. Uh, we talk about that frequently. It's true, no matter how much you would like to deny it. Uh, we're seeing that right here in Oregon with Deschutes laying off 10% of their workforce, which is uh, not an inconsiderable number of people. And, you know, she goes on to say innovation is the hot word. All growth seems to be innovation dependent. Full Sail and Budweiser have both gone batty with fruity spinoffs, but they're not the only ones. I would question if fruity spinoffs are really innovation, but I guess maybe for Budweiser. Uh, and she gets into the whole issue of uh, the Brewers Association and the way that they have kind of changed the definition of craft brewery in order to uh, keep Sam Adams in the fold with some of their new uh, inebriation beverage items that they're making. Well, to be to be frank, let's put it out there on the line. Boston Beer Company now makes more money from their uh, sparkling seltzer waters and their Angry Orchard ciders than they do from Sam Adams. So, right, and I'm you know, and I, as big a supporter as I am of the Brewers Association, I'm not quite sure how I feel about them manipulating the definition of craft brewing to include that kind of kind of thing. Um, I mean, do you have any thoughts, or are you, like me, kind of ambivalent and confused? I'm ambivalent, but, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, the Brewers Association will always change the definition to allow somebody like Sam Adams in. They have in the past. They changed the amount of volume that they allowed a craft brewery to, to produce in order to keep Sam Adams in. They removed the restrictions on adjuncts after, one, realizing that it was kind of a stupid restriction, and, two, that Yingling wanted into the fold, and Yingling used adjuncts up the wazoo. So, yeah, the Brewers Association as a trade organization is always going to change what craft brewery means as they care about for their membership profile. To me, it doesn't impact what I think is a craft brewery. So there you go. Yeah, well, and she finishes that part of the article with uh, uh, some very cogent statements. Uh, does independence really matter? And what does that mean? And who does it mean something to? And I think that that's something that... Uh, I would like to see a little bit more definition of from uh, the Brewers Association, but, you know, they don't do what I want, so who cares? 
Uh, another another great point she makes is how many breweries and tap rooms can Portland and the world hold? Grocery stores are going to force some relief as they cut the space they give craft brands. This will probably hurt small craft breweries and help faux craft breweries. Oh, I see and this I right think, now. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I, do, I do too, man. It, it's like so obvious. Yeah, I mean, the Safeway or slash Vaughn slash Albertsons, which is all the same chain, by the way. Uh, next to me, I mean, they used to actually play around carrying some local craft beers, and now it's all either nationally distributed craft beers or, you know, faux crafts from, you know, uh, Blake and Tenth and, and, you know, the high end. So yeah. yeah, right, and and generally at the expense of great but small breweries like like our friend Larry's Brewery Pono in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy who is making some great beers and deserves shelf space in every grocery store around here, and I've never seen him. So uh, another interesting point she makes: when a beer goes straight to cans and skips the draft department at a major craft brewery, is that like a movie going direct to DVD? <laughs> Which, ah, very, very interesting. And uh, what about ABI's craft brands? Up 17%, I heard, driven by Elysian Space Dust. When craft beer becomes just plain beer, this is what happens. And there was a, there was a big discussion about Space Dust on uh, Facebook recently, and it was pretty evenly divided by people going, I don't care who makes it, it's a good beer and I'm going to buy it. And people who went, I care who makes it, and no matter how good it is, I'm not going to buy it. And also, right. and don't forget, one of the original Elysian brewers has now opened up his own brewery, making a clone of what he considers to be the original Space Dust formula, because he doesn't consider the, the beer that's being put out to taste anything like the Space Dust he used to make. Yep, right. And uh, Terry goes on to say, a beer drinker wants a consistent and tasty beer at a good price. He or she doesn't care who brews it and where. Only we beer nerds give up whatever about the David and Goliath stuff. The word craft is as watery as a flat can of Coors Light. Boy, now there's a, there's a great turn of phrase, Terry. It's been redefined out of having any definition at all. It's just beer from now on, and your competition isn't even beer anymore. Well, but that's uh-huh. the reason why I think the Brewers Association made the pivot to the independence thing, you know, because, yeah, people are getting confused by it, and it doesn't make any sense anymore. So, yeah, right. Yep, yep. The, uh, she goes on to say, craft beer is stripping out alcohol. Is a non-alcoholic beer a soda? I know I'm rambling a bit, so what is going on to get an adult to drink alcohol-stripped beer? THC, the inebriating component in pot. Yes, we're entering the inebriation beverage industry now, and Canada will lead the way. It probably won't be legal to have both alcohol and THC in the same beverage, but at some point, both may be available in the same establishment, just like wine, beer, and spirits are sold together but not mixed together. Uh, but I'll tell you, here in California, we just got uh, a whole crackdown that was happening on not even THC, but on CBD. Right. Uh, California just recently passed a law that if you have a on-prem license or if you have any sort of, you know, licensed premises for you know selling alcohol, you are not allowed to have THC, CBD, or any components thereof on site. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I I can see that for now. I think that's going to change mm-hmm. because Terry finishes up by saying it's a brave new world out there, and we're all in for a wild ride for the next five years while this stuff shakes out. And in 1988, I thought microbrewed beer was going to be a revolution. So yeah, you know, it's it's going to be real interesting to see what happens. We have Terry's entire rant and ramble on our website at experimentalbrew.com. So uh, stop by, 
take, give it a read and give us your thoughts on, on what she's talking about. And so from a rant about what's happening with the industry and some of the stuff that's inevitably going to go hit the feds, we have to actually talk about the feds and the TTP, the uh, Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, or Alcohol Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. I don't know why they dropped the A. <laughs> but I didn't. if you pay attention to the real world and the news that we don't normally let leak in here, you know that the uh, federal government is currently in a shutdown, uh, at least partial shutdown, and the TTB has announced that most of their employees, which they consider to be non-essential, are you know effectively furloughed and not allowed to come anywhere near the office. So if you don't know what the TTB does in terms of the craft beer industry or the beer industry in general, uh, you know that your beer, anytime you package that beer and send it out, uh, you put a label on it. And that label has to be approved. So the federal government, in the form of the TTB, actually does all that approval. They approve names, they approve style descriptions, they approve the format of the label to make sure it includes all the necessary information, you know, like where it was manufactured, how, you know, uh, expirations and all this other sort of fun stuff. There's very strict rules about what it is, and there's a, a team of employees at the TTB that, that do that. And so that is now all stopped. So it says here... Uh, According to the document that the TTB produced uh, for a shutdown plan, uh, non-exempted activities include all non-criminal investigation activities, audit functions, examinations of returns, processing of tax returns that do not include remittances. So only 51 employees will still be left. But, I mean, it really does mean, like, there is no expansion of any alcohol licenses happening. There is no new approval of new beers. So now suddenly we've got uh, some breweries out there talking about their plans for the spring are actually under threat because they can't get new brands approved. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, and it's the way it's going to stay until things change. Yep. So there you go. The The real world is intruding in on the beer world in a way that we, uh, well, we didn't quite think. And, of course, uh, don't forget that since one of the primary functions of the government is to always make sure that they can take your money, uh, the TTB is still accepting, you know, fees. <laughs> Good on them. Yeah. All right, and then from there, I think we have to go talk. This one uh, popped up across my feed, and it's something I've heard more and more people grumbling about, but this was an article that appeared on my feed. It comes from craftbeer.com, and it's about, uh, it's titled, No Flight Zone, How One Brewery is Taking a Stand Against Trying Them All. So I like to go to breweries, and the first time I go into a brewery, you know, I'll inevitably order a flight, you know, get a couple of tasters so I can you know, kind of tell the general story of the brewery and figure out, okay, what do I like? But flights aren't actually hugely popular with the, with the brewery staff and the, and the brewery owners themselves because they're time-consuming to pour. You know, they take away time from dealing with other customers. It requires having a whole bunch of glasses on site to, to do, and then you've got all the fiddly bit about different pricing regimens and everything else. And in general, I think if breweries could get away without having to offer tasting flights, they probably would. As a consumer, I love tasting flights. But... Uh, this one brewery, uh, Haynes Brewing Company, up in Alaska, they uh, they are anti-flight to the point where they will only serve you five ounces of beer as the smallest portion because uh, their owner says, uh, you know, as we know, it, it takes more than a sip to truly taste a beer. Well, then I, there's a lot of beer judges that are going to be uh, surprised to hear that. Well, yeah, and of course it also makes me laugh because I think the standard size for a taster flight glass is about four ounces, so you're really one ounce down. Um, so they they have a no-sips policy. 
They do not offer taster flights. They fear the business of beer has negatively affected the enjoyment of craft beer. They say consumers want to compare beers and switch back and forth between brews within a flight, yet flavors linger longer and mix on their palates. Carbonation and character change at different rates. Flavors change with temperatures. So they they demand that if you're going to order f- uh, tasters from them, these five-ounce tasters, then you have to get them essentially one at a time. Um, and it's kind of strange to see somebody be that persnickety. Arrogant? That um, arrogant? Is that what you were going to say? I, well, I was going to say persnickety, but... It, let's let's face it, it. It just comes out to sheer arrogance. They're trying to tell me, you, and everybody else how they should drink their beer, how they should enjoy it. You know, you know I would say if you really want to do this, fine. Explain to people why you think your way is better, but don't keep them from doing it their way you are there to serve the customer if that's what the customer wants to have tasters let them have it well it's a point but i mean at least i mean i get what they're trying to do but yeah it, it's a little strange the, the other one that made me laugh is they uh, charge deposits on growlers <laughs> yeah right well fine you know go ahead and let them do that uh, so I guess they don't actually sell the growlers, and if they're not selling them, then the deposit, I have no problem with oh, no, that. You know? No, no, they, they, they charge a deposit on the growlers uh, so that the customers will return the growlers when they're done, and then they take the growler that the customers returned and do a full, thorough cleaning and inspection on the growler and give the customer another one. So they're basically just always swapping growlers. Yeah, and I have no problem with that. I guess what I'm saying is that they're not selling the growler bottle itself, which is the model that I am used to. Yeah, I, I don't know if, they're, if they are or not, but uh, I just thought that was interesting because I haven't seen somebody do that sort of thing for a while. But Haynes has been in business for 19 years, so I mean, they're not exactly you know young upstarts on the, on the scene. It's just really interesting to see somebody take such a hard-line stand because I do know that, like I said, a lot of breweries really don't like the tasting flight just because of the extra labor and lower return that they see for it. But I still like it. I mean, they, I mean, they don't, they don't mention that in this article, right? No, they don't. For them, they, it's all, it's all about, you can't truly appreciate our beer with uh, a taster. And it's like, dude, do not tell me how I can appreciate the beer. (laughs) There you go. I think we've touched a nerve, but I think it's time for us to finish these beers and move on to quieter places. I agree completely. We're going to get out of here and head over to the library where we'll talk about a 23-year-old article from the American Homebrewers Association that still has a lot of relevance and great information today. So stick around and we will be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. 
Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Thanks for sticking around. We've made our way over here to the library. We are surrounded by musty books and comfy chairs. And Drew is going to talk about an article by Michael Hall that showed up in the summer of 1995 in Zymergy and has a lot of relevance still. Yeah. Now, you may ask yourself, uh, guys, why are you talking about a Homebrew article from 1995? Isn't that like, you know, the Dark Ages? But this is a really good one from Michael Hall uh, from back in 95 that is called Brew by the Numbers, Add Up What's in Your Beer. And I think in this day and age when all of us have either brewing spreadsheets or brewing programs or we use like Brewer's Friends, you know, like website tools to do this sort of stuff. You know, sometimes we forget how all this stuff matters. And so Mike's uh, document here, his article, it is math dense. It comes through with a lot of you know various algebra bits to come to show you exactly how specific gravity is measured, how corrected specific gravity gets calculated, uh, different correction factors for gravity and for extract, uh, alcohol content, which is the reason why this article popped up on everybody's feed, and you know how you actually can tell things like calories and 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 carbonation calculations. So. It's actually kind of nice to see the math and get back into understanding some of that in comparison to what a lot of what we do nowadays, which is a, uh, I'll go open up ProMash or, you know, Beersmith or Brewer's Friend and I'll plug in my grains and whatnot and boom, out the other side comes all my numbers. Um, now, Denny, you want to tell people why the why this popped up because of the alcohol thing? Well, right now there's a, a discussion about a, a more accurate uh, alcohol calculation formula. And I don't have all the details here at hand, but there's a lot of discussion on it on the AHA form if you want to go there. But uh, apparently for very high or very low gravity beers, the alcohol calculation formula that we're all used to using isn't real accurate. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just basically anytime you go to the extremes. If you take a look at these these equations, you know, all of these are relatively simplified equations, and most of the simplification happens by adding in certain constants right so the and when you do that mathematically speaking what you're what you're saying is that there's a linear relationship right, right. so uh, there's a linear relationship across the spectrum of what uh, of what we're calculating so i can use a constant in order to be able to you know slide things to fit the line better and the problem is that as with a great many things in this world uh, linear relationships break down over you know expanses so whenever you move to the extremes the relationship that is linear in that middle is no longer linear and this is particularly true of alcohol. And so what some of the guys in the HA form are no noting is that because it has a linear factor in it, when you start to go out to the edges, you start to see differences in formulas that are like a full percent off, 
you know, in terms of, you know, what your actual calculated alcohol level is. So people are trying to figure out, okay, at what point is that inflection happen? What time does the linear model break? And if I remember correctly from the discussion, like many things in beer, that linear model starts to break at about 1060. <laughs> so Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that is just about right. And it turns out there's a lot of linear assumptions in brewing. I think we talked about this in the IBU is a lie episode as well that tend to break around 1060. So <laughs> it's, it's the magical thing. Body parts break at 60 and so do linear relationships. Yeah, in right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's probably easier to rewrite the formula than to get the body parts replaced. Arguably. Um, so th- Regardless of the fact that that was actually the reason that this article came back up, this article is free to read online thanks to the HA and having some of their uh, more kind of classic and key articles available online for free reading. It's a PDF. We'll include the link in the show notes. But you can dig in and you can actually see like where some of these numbers and these calculations come from. It's very useful for you to kind of stop and think about it and also to really remember that, yeah, a lot of these simplified models that we're using, well, they are simplified and – because of when they were developed, the extremes at the time are now very much in what we would consider to be the norms. So 10, 1060s and above, you know, we all do that. Back in the day, not as much. And uh, I guarantee you that uh, unless you're a real math geek, this article is going to make your head hurt. That's why we have beer. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, so shall we head over to the brewery now? I think we should. All right, stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We've moved over here to the brewery where we keep all the equipment and the magic happens. And Drew has a question for everybody. Well, first, I want to talk about being back in the brewery because obviously you heard last week's episode. We've talked about it a couple times already. Um, one of the side effects of the rat attack that my brewery experienced was I took everything out of my brewery. I cleaned everything. I stripped out all the extraneous crap that I've gathered up over the years and I've reorganized everything. And so what had been kind of a, a overflowing space is now much easier to navigate and much easier to understand. So it, it sticks actually a little bit closer to what I talked about in the organizing your brew space episode, episode 26 of the brew files. And it just feels better walking back and <laughs> walking back into the brewery now. And I can, I can, immediately put my hands out and know where everything is. It's still a work in progress as is all things in life, but it is very nice to be, uh, to be able to be back in the brewery and be able to have a sense of like, Oh yeah, I got this. I know exactly what to do. So 
There you go. If you if you have a little bit of time left over here on the holidays, or you have a little bit of you know, say winter downtime, take a moment, do some winter cleaning on your brewery, so that when spring rolls around and you're really ready to brew, you can go and jump right into the brewery and make magic. Yep, that's uh, and something I need to get to too. Uh, my brewery is kind of a mess because I. Uh, Tried to rush in a couple batches before I went in for my surgery and left things in a mess and haven't really been able to do a lot since then. But uh, that's that's my goal, too, is get out there soon, clean it up, because I'm ready to start brewing again. Yeah, and it also gave me a good excuse to break out my power washer. <laughs> More power. So here's the question that I have. Normally about this time of year, we talk about brewers resolutions and you know again the last episode of the show the brew files was based all on that idea of you know the most common brewers resolution that's out there you know the uh, i'm, I'm going to brew more and, but this year i wanted to take a different tack instead of doing a look forward because inevitably we always fail on our look forwards because i i remember last year my brewers resolution was i was going to finish the saison project <laughs> <laughs> yeah right like my mild uh-huh. Yeah. See, well, you got close at least. Um, so instead I figured we would look back and talk about what our favorite brew experience was. And what I want to hear from you guys, emails to podcast experimentalbrew.com or message us in any of the usual ways that you know, you have to get to us. What was your best brewing slash beer experience this past year? And for me, right off the top of my head, the, the best beer experience I had this year was getting to go to Australia. That was pretty damn rad. And, yep, that was and, pretty cool. Yeah, that was uh, that was a lot of great fun. Got a chance to speak a lot, you know, which is always fun, and to also meet a lot of people and try a lot of interesting new beers. I think for brewing experience, my favorite brewing experience of the year was you know, the first time I got to fire up a grandfather and sort of realized that I could have a very nice, simple brewing day that still made me feel very connected to the art of brewing itself. So that was a lot of fun too. Denny, you got any thoughts there? Well, I mean, in terms of travel, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go to uh, New Zealand as well as Australia and uh, both of them were, were stunning. Got to try some great beers, uh, meet some really good beer people. I think for me though, the high point was brewing two back-to-back -back batches myself that turned out really well. Uh, I spend so much time uh, testing new equipment, testing new ingredients, that uh, I'm not always coming up with a beer that I think is really the best it could be. Um, and so I just kind of went back to basics, pulled out one of my old favorite recipes for no-tie brown ale, an American brown, brewed it up, turned out great. It was so good that I made another batch of it so that I would have plenty to last me through the rest of the winter. And I would have to say that was the highlight of my brewing year, uh, except for maybe the guys from New Zealand coming over and uh, and brewing with me too. That that was pretty damn cool. Well, and I can only say that sounded like a hell of a party. So here we go. <laughs> it was. It was a big day. So here we go, listeners. What I want you to do is email us, podcastexperimentalbrew.com, leave us a voicemail, 626-765-1-AL, you know, text us at that number, leave us a Facebook message, however it is that you want to you know, send us the, the message. But give us what your best beer and your best brewing experiences were for 2017, or wait, 2018, right? Yeah. For 2018. And, well, you know, 
we'll pick something out of the slush pile. We'll read, we'll read, we'll read what we think the great ones are. And, you know, we'll see who we think had the best brewing year and we'll see what we can do for you. So, uh, time to go lounge now. I think so. Alrighty, we're going to head over to the lounge and listen to uh, a couple interviews Drew did with the organizers of the Long Beach Homebrew Fest, which sounds like uh, a lot more than just a homebrew fest. Stick around, we're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Thanks for sticking around. We are lounging here in the lounge. And Drew, why don't you tell us about this uh, homebrew fest you went to? Yeah, well, I didn't actually attend this homebrew fest, but I I caught wind of it, and I think it's one of these really great things. So there is the Long Beach Homebrew Fest that happens every year. And what's interesting about it is we are... And one, we're seeing more homebrew clubs do this. The SoCal Cerveceros are doing one. They're do, their next one, they're, they're planning on getting 1,500 attendees to, which is insane. Um, but the Long Beach Fest is a very small fest because it has a very particular goal. And it's put on by an organization called We Love Long Beach, which is sort of a community organization that's dedicated to well rediscovering the lost idea of neighborhood community. You know, getting back to that idea that everybody had, like, oh, I know my neighbors, you know, and I can go over a bar or a cup of sugar, you know. I've lived in my house now for eight years. I know one of my neighbors. You know, it's that sort of thing. And that's what they're trying to combat. They're combating, you know, what they kind of consider to be that rising tide of loneliness and doing it through the art of a couple of different things, including this homebrew festival. Um, and so what we're going to do is I've got two different interviews here. The first interview is with Scott Jones, who is in charge of We Love Long Beach and talking about, well, exactly how he got involved in community organization and why he feels that homebrew is such a great way to bring the community together. And then after that, we're going to talk with Neil Horowitz of the Long Beach Homebrewers, whose club actually helps put on the festival and provides a good portion of the beer. And we talk with him about his experiences uh, doing the, the brewing, what beers he's made, and exactly how it goes about you know making a grand party for everybody. So sit back. And let's take a listen. I have on the line of the first part of the show for today is actually to talk about the foundation of the event that we're going to talk about, uh, the Long Beach Homebrewers Festival. I have on the line Scott Jones. Scott, say hi to everybody. Hey, everyone. How you doing? All right. So, Scott, what's the organization that we're talking about here today? So, my sister and I started a nonprofit back in 2008 called We Love Long Beach, and it's a community development organization, uh, which means that our passion is creating neighborliness. So no, trying to encourage people not to ignore their neighbors, but 
to get to know their neighbors uh, through block parties, through ice cream socials, through neighborhood breakfast, things like that, um, just to kind of create kind of a, a social cohesion uh, or a social capital that uh, actually brings people to, together and kind of creates trust uh, within neighborhoods. So trying to break through the sort of modern American malaise about knowing your neighbors? Yeah, and also right now the coming out recently is that we're experiencing uh, a loneliness ec- epidemic. Mm-hmm. So I think that not knowing your neighbors also creates this divide that uh, other people end up getting, becoming lonely um, that live around you. And uh, they're showing that that has a tremendous uh, uh, bad health uh, effects on, on people um, on, on a, a longer, um, what do you call it? Um, a longer term basis? Just as, they get, as they get older. Mm-hmm. Well, and so now, obviously, we're a beer show, and we have great belie- we are great believers in the power of good beer, and particularly good beer for making good friends. So, how does beer enter into that equation for you guys? Yeah, so for us, um, there are three key elements that help create community and hospitality. Um, number one is is food. Number two is drink. And number three is having fun together. So um, with our events, we, we want to see all three of those happening all at the same time. And so for us, beer um, is, a, is an amazing catalyst to create that community connection that I think everyone wants to be a part of. Well, and so let's talk the Long Beach Homebrewers Festival. You guys have been doing that event now for how many years? We've been doing it uh, three years now. Three years. So how did how did that get started? Like, at what point did you guys go, hey, you know, we could do a, a homebrew festival? Yeah, so one thing is we believe in when we create community that people are unique. So people have unique talents, skills, gifts, and passions. And, and for us, we like to say that a gift isn't a gift until you give it away and it's received. And so what happens often is people have these things that they're good at, but they're not necessarily sharing it with each other. And we had a, a breakfast. And what we do with our citywide breakfast, instead of doing one breakfast, let's say, at my house, we equip people who live in their, in their specific neighborhoods, um, and we give them a breakfast kit mm-hmm. so that they can have a breakfast where they live. So instead of doing one big breakfast at my house, let's say a hundred people show up, we could do a thousand breakfasts around the city of Long Beach um, all at the same time and, you know, cover more ground that way. And so that's what we did um, a few years back. And what we do after the breakfast is we gather all the hosts. So we gather around, you know, 50 hosts who hosted the breakfast at my house for like a potluck. And one of our hosts, um, her name is Andy, uh, brought, beer her home her home uh, homemade beer so we're all drinking this beer and like wow this is really good she's like yeah i made it i was like wow like i wonder how we could you know do something with this well it ends up andy was the you know at the time the vice president of the long beach home brewers and so we just started that conversation and 
um, out of that, Andy, uh, my sister Robin and I, uh, you know, kind of brainstormed this event, you know, the, the Long Beach Home Brew Festival. And uh, so here we are three years later um, with our third uh, sellout of that event. And how many, uh, how many brewers were pouring? Uh, we had 25 brewers uh, this last week. Um, one cider, we actually we had one gluten-free beer for the first time, which I thought was a a great ad as well. Um, one of my friends can't is gluten intolerant, so that was the one he was sucking down, you know, on Saturday. Well, that's always nice. And then, of course, you guys also had, if I remember correctly, a couple of commercial breweries, and you know, kind of expanded the presence as well. Yeah, so we do a, a VIP section, and we had. Uh, five uh, pro local home brewers. So we had Beachwood, um, Ambitious Ale, which is opening on Atlantic in the next month or two. Um, Liberation Ale, which is right down the street from Ambitious Ale on, on Atlantic. Uh, 10 Mile Brewing and uh, Long Beach Beer Lab as well, all participated. So it's cool because all these are Long Beach um, local home, bre- you know, local brewers. And then we have you know, 25 local homebrewers as well. So the whole event kind of is a celebration of the gifts and the uniqueness and passions of local. Well, and and listeners of the podcast will have already heard from uh, Levy over at Long Beach Beer Lab and Dan over at Liberation and fairly shortly from the fellows at 10 Mile. So uh, we have a little Long Beach block going right now, it seems. Um, Yeah. So now let me ask, um, what does it take be- to actually get a festival like this off the ground? I mean, kind of from not only the the community planning aspect of it, but also from the point of view of like, you know, a lot of times cities get a little weird whenever you start to involve homebrewed beer. Yeah. Um, I mean, our main thing is just covering our basis. We, you know, we go through the ABC, the alcohol, um, and, and get the permit for that. Um, which usually the pro beer brewers want that as well. Um, and then, you know, we, we get a, an insurance policy, um, that, that just covers, you know, if something went down at the event that that covers that. Um, and those are the, the main two things that we do. Um, we like to do it, um, it makes sense for us to do it at a, a home. So we kind of do it at a, this kind of mansion in in a Virginia country club that has this gigantic backyard. Um, and it kind of makes sense for us. I mean, we're a community centered neighborhood centered organization. People are brewing home brew. And so it makes sense to kind of create that, that event gathering at a home. Well, and I suppose in this particular case, since it's all about building neighborliness, you know, the neighbors are all invited. So hopefully everybody's on board. Yeah. I mean, all the neighbors love the event. Um, and the, the man that it's at his house, his name's Pat. And I mean, he's throwing movie nights and, and all these sorts of things, uh, for his neighbors on a regular basis. So that neighborhood already has that sense of community connection. And I think what the, this event does, it just kind of, just adds another layer to that, that, I mean, who doesn't want to, 
you know, drink beer with their neighbors. <laughs> it seems like a perfectly reasonable idea to me. Um, so now you, you said that uh, this was the third year and it sold out. How many people actually were at the festival? We had a, around 300 people. Um, we think the, the cap maybe be around 350. Mm-hmm. Um, we just like to ease into it. But one of my friends, you know, you know, said he loves the event because he's never standing in a line. You know, you, you pretty much go, you know, to uh, one of the beer stations and you're talking to the, the, the brewer and getting to know him and you're getting your beer and you're drinking it right there versus you can go to a lot of these events that aren't really as much about community, mm-hmm. but about making money. And a lot of the cr- criticism I hear of those events is that you're standing in line for 30 minutes for the restroom or to get a beer. Um, and that's what like the quality of the event is just, you're standing around a lot versus actually being in relationship, enjoying a beer and uh, talking to the, the home brewer, kind of picking their brain behind the, the, the science of what they're doing. And so for us, the key to community is, is not necessarily trying to scale an event. Um, but there's a line from, E.F. Schumacher um, in the 70s, it says that small is beautiful. Um, and so kind of goes against that American, you know, kind of go big or go home model that I think a lot of events have become. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of just happy more so with, you know, creating that that sense of a cool uh, community vibe instead. Oh, that sounds awesome. And I, I agree. I think one of my main complaints about beer festivals and part of the reasons why I've stopped going to so many of them is yeah, you spend a lot of time standing in line, but then you're also getting your beer poured by somebody who I'm at best in a lot of places maybe they're a sales rep for the brewery, but they can't tell you anything about the beer, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. it's not their passion project. I mean, with home brewers, that's your passion. Yep, exactly. And yeah. so that, I think that's what makes our, our event unique is, because we're a nonprofit that is focused on community, then our goal is to create the best community experience as possible versus how do we double our money next year? <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of people in just the events industry as a whole, not just in the beer events, that, that people want to make as much money as possible versus creating an event where people are like, wow, uh, when is it happening next year? <laughs> which that's our response both from the home brewers the pro brewers the band um and the participants everyone's like so when's the next one there you go well and, and next question will probably be hey so can we have another one before the next one <laughs> that, that's how you know you're throwing a good party and, and yeah i mean we've talked about you know having a spring one and a fall one at, at, at some point um there's also that that we don't, we, we kind of like that element like Christmas that happens once a year. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you have that element of, you have something to look forward to. And we don't want, you know, there's that fine line of giving, you know, having three pieces of candy and having 20 pieces of candy. And uh, the enjoyment goes down quick. So we have to teeter that line and just be aware of that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. And of course, it can't be a a beer festival without you know some sort of evaluation of the beer. And I understand there were a couple of winners. Yeah, so we started the first year with um, 
the people's choice, which we have a, a trophy, um, and and we have we made little tokens, and, and everyone that that attends the event gets two tokens, and they get to vote uh, vote on um, their favorite beer, so they can vote two tokens in a bucket for for their beer, or they they like two beers, so they can give you know a token to 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 one of each. Um, and so we kind of like that element. It kind of brings kind of a more democratic approach of what the people want. Um, and then the second year, so last year, um, we worked with the, the Long Beach Home Brewers Club, and they, they got some judges together and uh, did more of a, the traditional um, evaluation of, of the beer. So we kind of like both of those elements. So you kind of have a, a peers level of, you know, people that actually know what they're talking about in the area of beer. And then you have kind of more public level of this really tastes good. Or, you know, some people, you know, bring 20 people and say, Hey, vote for my beer. So <laughs> welcome to democracy. <laughs> Chicago block voting. Absolutely. Uh, and exactly. who are the winners this year? Um, I can't remember who, who it was. Um, but uh, one of one of them was uh, a father daughter who just started brewing together. They so want the people. So the, the notes I so have that was pretty cool. And and the notes I have is the father daughter team was uh, Stephanie and uh, Pat McGee. Yep. Yep. Uh, do you remember what beer they did? Um, I don't. <laughs> you were too busy running the event. Exactly. Um. Yeah. You can tell I care a lot about beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then uh, the other uh, the other part of no, uh, note I have is that the judges' choice, so the uh, you know professionally evaluated Zach, choice, I believe. yeah, uh, Zach Alexander, and I believe that was a Russian Imperial Stout. And of course, we're going to try and uh, get them on the podcast as well to talk about their beers. But um, in the meanwhile, Scott, I I have to say I I really appreciate the fact that uh, you're putting some truth to the idea that beer can make good friends. And that you're mm-hmm. that you're really out there fighting the good fight to you know get people out of their houses, get people to know their neighbors, and you know hopefully build stronger community bonds. Yeah, and I think for us too, in the area of community, is we want to get better at the event, um, and so we're always open to feedback of how we can improve the event and make it better. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, for us, um, it's really a, a, a quality a life thing. And Aristotle always talks about the good society. Um, and so part of the good society is, is seeking the common good of everyone, not just a few people. And, and so that's kind of what Arvin is, is trying to create is, is to gather everyone who loves beer um, together and, and to enjoy that together. And I, I, to me, I think that's what life's all about is uh Enjoying, enjoying life with, with others, you know, and it helps to have a beer in your hand. Yes. As the great philosopher Hunter S. Thompson once said, good people drink good beer. <laughs> well, hey, <Touché>. Scott. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, and good luck with the event and good luck with your mission. And uh, listeners, stay tuned because we're going to be talking a little bit more about this event in just a short order. Awesome. And so, I mean, looking at the list, so third annual Long Beach Homebrew Festival, and we've got 
25, well, actually, really 26 with the non-judged mm-hmm. uh, beer yeah. in there. Right. And and you're in there with at number 14 with your, your IPA. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, real quick, just to give everybody the standing, we are here at 10 Mile Brewing Company in Signal Hill, and I am sitting down with Neil. Neil, introduce yourself to everybody. I'm Neil Horowitz. I've been a member with uh, Long Beach Homebrewers. Uh, well, solidly for the last uh, three, two, two and a half, three years, and I was a member several years ago, but then I moved out of the area and came back, and so now I'm back with them. And You're back with your one true love. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've been brewing um, cons- consistently for the last five and a half, six years, and I started brewing when my significant other's brother-in-law talked me into coming over to the house and brewing up a batch of beer and kind of got the bug at that point. And what what do you normally make? Well, that's a, to say normally make, it's kind of a mixed bag. I, I kind of tend towards IPAs just because they're simple, easy, and quick. Mm-hmm. But I, I've done stouts, I've done ambers, red ales, bar, um Beer to guard, mm-hmm. uh, and I've done also Bel- oh, Belgians. I've done Belgian several times. I did a Belgian double that won a couple of awards. Uh, first place in the Inland Brewers uh, homebrew competition last year, and then also second place for that same beer, the uh, Belgian uh, Los Angeles Belgian Beer Challenge last year and uh so i'm actually now i'm working on a recipe for a dark rye beer mm-hmm. and so i'm t- toying with that at this point well and currently you are the president of the no i'm Beach. not oh you're not actually ray is ray is yeah what is, well then i got confused so what is your role right now in long beach i am a um member of the board uh, um, um, I call it emeritus, mm-hmm. and so I have a semi-word of what what's happening, but I'm generally a member at large. Uh, it, for those of you who have not been involved with very many homebrew clubs, anytime you ever hear the word emeritus attached to something, that just means, hey, old fart, we're keeping you around to make sure that you're still doing things. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what happens with me and the Falcons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I, you know, I. Throw in my two cents what I can. I think uh, this year Ray is coming up for uh, the in March of next year. Actually, the presidency he's going to step down, and so there's been talk of people stepping in, but I don't think I'm going to step into that role. <laughs> well, it, I find that a lot of times with volunteer organizations, it's not whether or not you step step in; mm-hmm. it's whether or not you step back fast enough. Right. Exactly. <laughs> if you, if you, a lot of times you find yourself suddenly going, oh, wait, I'm, I volunteered? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, being uh, the, in the uh, uh, member at large for the board, it's kind of like I, they keep me informed of what's going on at this mm-hmm. point, and it's kind of throwing in my two cents if they decide on trying to do something for uh, something within the uh, uh, club's uh, his things coming up. Mm-hmm. So, 
let's talk the the, the festival. So, mm-hmm. uh, listeners will have already heard from Scott about the the We Love Long Beach aspect of it. So, this is the third year, right? And it, describe the club's involvement in this. Well, uh, Ray runs the uh, judging of the uh, prof- on the professional kind of side judging for the the beers, mm-hmm. and we uh, kind of help organize some of the things that are going on. Uh, originally, uh, one of the members of the club, she, uh, Andy Hakem, was one of the uh, organizers of the for the brewing end. Mm-hmm. One of our members, um, Mark, now this year was help organizing the all the, the beer end of it, getting everybody organized, setting up in, when they came to the event, and also. Uh, Helped uh, collect the beer samples for the judge, pretty quote professional and judging. <laughs> well, and that was the one that was won by uh, Zach Alexander, I think. I believe so. With yeah. his Russian Imperial. Uh huh. And so now let's talk about it from a logistics point of view, right? Because you know, I mean, obviously, how how does how does the the club put it together so that you do get you know, twenty six different beers being poured from pumpers. Well, it's actually not so much our end of it as the organizers. They it was a couple of months ago they put out an email asking for people to sign up and submit beers. And so they go through that uh, list of people submitting and then whoever the first twenty five are, they say, Okay, well what's your beer and what are you gonna brew and put it down on the list. And hopefully they have enough people. And I believe that cutting down to the wire, they were coming up a little short, but they finally had enough people that signed up for it. Hmm. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised. I would have thought people would be like, oh, yeah, I want to pour. Well, you know, it's it's a commitment because uh, you, you have to definitely have five, between four and a half to five gallons of beer to pour on that day for that event. And so you have to kind of schedule your brewing schedule so you know that the beer is ready for that at that time. Like for myself, I was looking about a little more than a month out uh, to be able to brew it, get it conditioned, and bottle it, because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I live in a one-bedroom apartment and don't really have this storage space for kegging, and a lot of the other people at the event uh, keg their beers. For the people that were actually in the club uh, that were there, most everybody except myself were actually have pouring out of a keg, mm-hmm. and so they they had we had tap boxes all set up with all that nice. But uh, when you're thinking about you know what beer you're going to brew and they wanted the name and they wanted all that, you have to kind of make sure you have it all solid. You you don't want to come up on that day and say, "Oops, I don't have the beer for you," and them have to run around trying to find somebody else to fill that slot. And then breaking out the Sharpies and, and scratching out number 14 and writing something right. that's in. Right. Well, you know, the, the gentleman that was pouring number 13, that was right next to me, David, mm-hmm. he had originally planned to pour his, uh, it was a grapefruit. Uh, grapefruit. Dead eye. Right. And I guess uh, he had a minor catastrophe the night before, and so the beer didn't make it and so he ended up pouring a Cezanne instead and so during the event all day long he was trying to explain to people he had a little sign out but no this one is not the one on the list so please exercise your reading comprehension skills <laughs> exactly so, so 
Now, it, let's talk then uh, your beer. You said you had a month-long you know, sort of plan in mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. So, okay, how did you decide, okay, look, I'm going to do this IPA, and your, your IPA is hop to it. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you decide, okay, I'm going to do a hop to it, and that's going to be appropriate for this audience, and what do I do? Well, last year I actually made a Christmas-style uh, kind of, a, it was an apple... Um, beer hybrid mm-hmm. uh, so like a graph or something like that. right and it was this I used a, a pale ale base but then I poured in like two gallons of apples actually I didn't wasn't actual apple cider I used apple juice concentrate mm-hmm. and I sp- used it instead of pumpkin spices I used like a pie spice to it and everybody really loved it mm-hmm. and it came out really good so I decided that that was fun. Let me do something different, and I like doing IPAs. And I went to the American Homebrewers Association conference this past year in Portland, and they have a homebrew expo there, and mm-hmm. they give you free samples of this, that, and everything. And I ended up coming home with like twenty-three different hops. Yeah, yeah so, some of our listeners have made great sport of the uh, Homebrew Expo giveaways mm-hmm. and uh, posting giant swag grabs. So, But you came home with 23 varieties of hops. Right. Nice. And so it's like I had made a IPA in August, which I called Hoppy August, and used some of those hops, and I still had quite a few left. And so I ended up using uh, some Simcoe, an ounce of Simcoe for a 60-minute boil. I had a... 15-minute edition of Denali. I used an experimental X-something number hop for five minutes, and then I dry hopped it for five days with low, uh, Equino and Laurel hops, mm-hmm. which were all from the event. I, I came home with some uh, it was malted oats, and I used that in, in, in the brew. I also had some... Uh, a small three-ounce bag of uh, Crystal 60 that I used, and, and so it was like, oh, let's see what else can I use from the that I have sitting here. And Wait, so, uh, hold on. how how much of the ingredients for this beer did you actually pay for then? Uh, let's see. I bought the water, so I was <laughs> five gallons of water, and I actually got this Mangrove Jack's um, West Coast IPA mm-hmm. yeast yep. at the event. Yep. And I used that, but it was like reading the reviews of that yeast, it said, well, it was really slow. And it was like two days later, it still wasn't doing anything. So I did buy some Cephal 05 yeast to pitch into it. And the next day it was going crazy. So, All right. So, so far we've got water. And a packet of yeast. Yeah, pretty much. And that's it? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, no, I honestly, I also threw two pounds of honey in it. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Well, now at least it's it's respectable and not quite free beer. Right, not quite free beer, but I was, I was working on it. Yeah. So was there, I mean, it seemed like with the, the graph that you were talking about last year, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of a thing that I could see being unique enough and, and sort of, pop up enough that, you, that you'd catch the audience's attention. Uh, and I think uh, Scott was saying there was 300 people or so at the, at the event. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you have as you're doing this, it, were you trying to figure out ways that you can make your IPA stand out to the crowd? Or 
Right. Well, I, I wanted to... What was interesting, once it was all said and done, it, it I was expecting it to be a little bit of a darker beer, and it ended up being very pale and light in color. But it ended up being a 7.5% alcohol by volume. Oh, just a tiny bit. So it's just a tiny bit. So I, you know, I figured, well, you know, it's like I wanted, and it, I was hoping to have that excessive hoppy, um, kind of fruity tropical flavors because mm-hmm. that's the hops that I used, and I hope that would help impress people. And honestly, everyone that came up and tried it really liked it. And they said that you know, for the IPAs they were tasting that day, they they really liked it. Well, and and, and looking looking at the list, that's. What we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight IPAs out of twenty-five right. entries. So, and I found it interesting that neither one of the winning beers the was an IPA was an IPA, which I think last year also was a, a sour beer of some sort. But it was last year when I poured my graph. It was everybody was loving it, saying this is the perfect beer for the holidays, and I was thinking, oh, this is great. Everybody's liking the beer, and I didn't win. <laughs> so <laughs> I got I, this in the bag. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, I people coming up this year handing me, well, where, here's my token. Where should I put it? I said, well, there's a bucket over there with number 14 on it. You can put it in there. So I, I know I had more than five, but you know, obviously it wasn't enough to... Uh, take home any big prize well and let's face it i mean i think the point of a festival like this isn't necessarily about taking home the prize no no i was just real happy you know it's like they liked it (laughs) you know i'm just if anybody (laughs) likes my beer i'm that's all i'm really looking for anyway so let's let's talk a little bit about that because i mean obviously none of us are here none of us are here to sell our beer right you know exactly we're not, we wouldn't be doing a festival like this and go, oh, hey, you know, look, I'm doing this because I have some sort of some sort of future financial gain that I'm going to get out of this. So why, why do you, why does the club, you know, why do you guys go through essentially the hassle to go make a beer and go and, and pour at a party when there's no sort of, you know, Profit. Well, the thing is that the profit is getting the people interested in home brewing, and hopefully that interest to pique them enough to want to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why you know the club being there to represent the club is hopefully to bring more people into the club as members, and and the club in itself is a learning place. It's a place for people to come, bring their beers, get input to see how they can make it better maybe or change it mm-hmm. and that's the the purpose of our our club is to education mm-hmm. you know the the more people that are members the more difference inputs you get the different styles that people like to make the things they learn to be able to make a better beer and that's the whole point you know no nobody even though some of the members not to mention any names like dan sungstrom who was a member <laughs> with the long beach home brewers um, went off and started their own brewery as we are sitting here. I was going to say, as in the facility that we're here and that listeners will have either heard from or will be hearing from shortly on the podcast. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's like everybody has a dream of having their own brewery once you start making beer, but in reality, 
just making the beer and ha- having this for the enjoyment is is what I like about it. You know, it's like having something that I've made come out good to be able to share it with family and friends and for them to say, hey, this is good. And I've had people try my beer and ask if they could buy some of it. I said, no, I don't sell it. I, I give it to you. Well, I was going to say, so, I mean, with the, what's called the little bit of ego rush mm-hmm. that I think that, that you get out of pouring an event like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you have people going, oh, hey, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, being able to sell your beer? Have you ever thought about being able to sell your beer? Or are you just happy being a, a, a hobbyist? I'm happy just making it at home because I, you know, if the cost and the whole legality of having to be able to go and start selling your beer to the public is more than I want to have to pay. You know, it's like it's enough that I could make a batch of beer for you know, 50, 60 bucks inclusive of all the actual input and costs that would do to do it. And then end up having something that would actually be, if it was retail, be 150 to $200 worth. Uh, it, it, yeah, that's like me and any of my uh, strong Belgian beers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those strong Belgian beers where, you know, hey, that bottle's going to cost you way too much money. And suddenly, yeah, you can make a case of it for relative pennies. Right, like, the, you know, the hop to it I made. You know, I've noticed if you go to the store, you see the price of beers and how much they cost. You know, you go for a, a regular... Uh, beer that's around, you know, four and a half, five percent alcohol. You're looking at something under like eight, seven, eight dollars. You go to a double or something that you're looking at twelve or thirteen dollars for a, a four pack or a six pack of that beer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm looking at my beer. It's like at seven and a half percent. You're looking at about seven, eight dollars for a bottle of beer times twenty four. That ends up being a little real good deal on a bottle of beer as I was concerned. Absolutely. Well, and I think we have a bottle of Hop To It sitting here next to us. Yes. I think we ought to try it. So, all right. Let me pop that. And, and for the uh, listeners, uh, Neil has uh, exercised the first right of all homebrewers, which is he has his own bottle opener. Yeah. Which I got at the We Love Long Beach event last year. <laughs> it's all circles, man. <laughs> All right, and so we've got uh, pouring into the glasses right now. Yeah, you're right. This is fairly pale. This is, mm-hmm. like, golden. And so you were saying uh, pale malt, a little bit of a crystal, uh, like a medium right, crystal. Right, actually, uh, I, I did buy uh, six pounds of dry malt extract. Okay. And just because... I didn't want the color to be impacted, and if I used a regular liquid pale malt, that would have darkened it up. Yeah. Right. And so, and then, and also honey. And two pounds of honey. And oat malt. <laughs> yeah, the malted oats, I used a pound of that. Mm. Yeah, and uh, as we're sitting here sticking our noses in glasses, I know this is great radio, but uh, I'm really impressed by just sort of the overall... Tropical fruitiness. There's that pineapple. There's also a very large herbaceous quality. You know, mm-hmm. something almost oregano-esque. You know. And what would you use in the in the finish? Because I know you said equinot. Equinot and laurel. Laurel. Mm-hmm. I like laurel a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was 
something I'd never used, but as I was deciding on the recipe for this, I'm looking at the packages, looking up the descriptions of all the different hops, and you know, it's anything that's a tropical um, fruit and pineapple, grapefruit, I was looking for. There was a little bit, a couple of them that had a little like piney notes, but I was trying to stay away from anything that was really dank. Right. Well, and so what's interesting to me is that, okay, so I get a little bit of the pineapple in the nose on this, but once we're actually into the taste, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way because I actually think it's a compliment in terms of what you're trying to go for. Mm-hmm. I get that flavor of tropical fruit punch, like Hawaiian fruit punch, mm-hmm. you know, where it's all those different fruits and something bright and acidic, and, and, then, and then the bitterness comes through. And I think it's aided actually by the honey because mm-hmm. I think the honey adds a little bit of fruity sweetness as well. Right. It, is, it adds a little more sweetness, but I actually, instead of adding it at the end of the boil, I added it at the beginning. So a lot of that sugar and quality kind of boiled off, mm-hmm. but I think it's still added to the dryness of the end of the product of what I made. And was it any particular special honey or just like... Yes, it came from Costco. Uh, Costco. Five pounds of their clover honey. Hey. Don't laugh. Sometimes, uh, sometimes those are a hell of a deals. Well, you know, in in reality, it's you know the price was right, and I've used it before, and you know it's non uh, non GMO, and so I'm looking for something when I'm making a beer. I like to kind of keep it as you know organic, quote as possible, and uh, it. I've used it actually in some beers that I've made as in, when I do the bottle conditioning. I've added it for bottle conditioning also because it's just very light and not necessarily descript as as a flavor. Yeah, and so I know listeners will have picked up on the fact that you were talking that this is an extract beer, mm-hmm. you know, um, and which of course, as we know, there be a lot of people out there who be like, burr, 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 and extract's not real brewing. It's going to taste bad. Mm-hmm. If you didn't tell me that this was that this had extract, uh, there's nothing in the flavor that would tell me this. Mm-hmm. So I mean, because it finishes crisp, it finishes dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sweetness there is from the honey, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then you've got all that hop character in there, so you know, absolutely excellent. Thanks. Uh, now, looking at this list of 26 beers that were poured at the festival, other than your own, mm-hmm. what was your favorite? Well, I had. Oh, let me look at the list because my memory is very short. Well, you don't. You don't remember every beer you had at a beer festival. No. <laughs> when you, I mean, last year I went to the Southern California Homebrews Fest in, in uh, Temecula, and you know they have over three hundred different beers, and it's kind of like you try to keep track, but it's, it's almost impossible. Oh, I, I would suspect that the SoCal Homebrews Festival is closer to about five hundred. Well, I would probably, but I, I've only got to about two hundred of them. <laughs> you did better than I did. Yeah, but uh, I really did like uh, the uh, well, Adam, who's one of the members of the club. The American barley wine, mm-hmm. and everybody was running over their taste, and it was it was well made. It was very nice, he, and it had that really kind of nice maltiness that you're looking for. And the other one that I, I really liked was let me see which one was that. That was uh, for, uh, Renee Miller. They did a Schwartz beer, mm-hmm. 
and it just had that really nice kind of toastiness, malt quality, just a slight bit of hoppiness to it, but it just had that kind of, I want to drink some more of this feel to it. Uh, the good old, much maligned drinkability factor. Well, the exactly, seat. exactly. You know, it's, if, if I want to drink more of something, that makes me think that I probably would want to come back and drink some more of that some other day. So, I mean, when you go to any place to buy a beer, you're looking around, you know, what, what have I had? What do I want to buy some more of? And that makes a big difference. That's why we're here at 10 Mile, and I'm drinking their you know, the common, the Kentucky Common, because it's just something that's very reliable. They've done before, and it's it's here again, and it's always something easy to pick off the list. Yeah, it's very uh, very tasty. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, so Neil, before we uh, wrap up, anything else that you want to talk about in terms of the festival, your IPA, or other brewing adventures, or why people should, if they get a chance, either put something together like this or get involved with a festival like this? Well, the, the this festival, besides being a, a great deal for the, just a basic entry of 40 bucks, you're going around and you're tasting 25 different beers. Did and you get to all 25? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I spent a lot of my time staying there pouring my beer. You know, I got snuck away for a little bit a couple of times to be able to try something else. But, you know, for the... the festival goer you get to try 25 different beers there it's unlimited which can be dangerous and so we always suggest that you want to take it alternate means of transportation rather than drive yourself designated driver uber or lyft they are your friends or have a family member that wants to come to the event and not drink mass quantities that's a different family than my family exactly and uh you know, an event like this, you know, it does take a lot of planning, and you have to reach out to the brewing community to be able to come in and uh, pour a beer. Well, I have to admit, I I live up in Pasadena, so again, geography-wise, for listeners, that's 25, 27 miles away from where we are right now uh, in Signal Hill, and uh, I'm I'm a little jealous, and I think. Uh, I think I need to kick somebody's can to get this going in Pasadena because I like this idea. Just you know, for the chance to be able to reach out to the public, you know, to to the drinking public who may not necessarily have ever been exposed to homebrew more than the stuff that came out of Uncle Dan's closet, you know, um, and also get a chance to hang out with fellow homebrewers and having some fun and you know, really sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, playing at being a commercial brewery. Well, and you get to exchange ideas, and that's the really a, a real big, important part of it is you get to talk to other people about how they did their beer, what they did to get it to the point where it is, and to find out ways of maybe making your beer better. Well, there you go. And well, and Neil, thank you so much for bringing the IPA. Oh, sure. I, this was very tasty. Thank you. And I'm not kidding. Like I said, I mean. If you hadn't said the words, you know, extract in there, I mm-hmm. never would know. And again, boys and girls, this is the reason why I say it's not the ingredients' fault that a lot of extract beer sucks. It's the the fact that it's usually in the hands of beginning brewers who don't know all their p's and q's about fermentation and sanitation. And well, yeah, sanitation is the big part. You know, it's like anything. You know, brewing the beer is easy, but getting to the point, making sure everything's clean and ready to go is the most important part because 
you just decide to, okay, let's use this bucket, throw some beer in there, it's probably not going to turn out the way you hoped unless you clean it right. Probably not. So, you know, where can people find out more information about Long Beach Homebrewers? Uh, there is uh, on Facebook, there's uh, Long Beach Homebrewers, and also uh, longbeachhomebrewers.com, uh, I believe. Mm-hmm. And where does the oh, club actually, meet? .org. And where does the club meet? Uh, every uh, second Tuesday of the month at Steinfillers over here in uh, Long Beach. And it's off of uh, Lakewood and Carson Boulevard. And uh, it's the club membership is $20 a year for an individual. And if you want to have a family member, it's 25 So that's a really good deal. And that's for one year. And every Tuesday uh, we meet uh, every second Tuesday of the month we meet and there's usually a specific style that we're talking about and tasting that day and uh, four times a year we have a specific style that everybody's supposed to well not everybody but whoever liked to brew it bring it in and at the end of the year the person that gains the most points for brewing that specific style over those four months becomes home brewer of the year and uh, sometimes it has commercial ramifications, uh, as we've discussed in the podcast with Dan about uh, the Kentucky Common here. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, a, beer, a beer born out of a style of competition with Long Beach Humbers. In actuality, one of the, the homebrew of the year this year, Derek Johnson, is actually going off and opening up his own brewery with some other people. So... Funny how that happens. There are a lot of people out there who want to, uh, who seem to be perfectly happy to ruin a perfectly good hobby. <laughs> well, you know, if you can do it, more power to you. It's just that, you know, it does, like I said, it takes an expense, and uh, hopefully you're making beers that everybody will want to come back and buy and drink lots of. Absolutely. And speaking of drinking more beer, I think this is the perfect time for us to uh, to go off, go have a beer, Go pet, uh, go pet some of the brewery dogs who are hanging around here, uh, flopping around on the floor. Thanks. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come out and share your beer and talk about the festival. And, you know, I really do encourage people, look at this idea. I think there's, a, I think there's some fun stuff to happen around this idea with American home brewers. And just make it happen. Get the good name out. Man, that sounds like a great event and especially a great concept. Well, and it's kind of cool that I mean, like you know this one guy turns his house over to to three hundred people to basically come in and have a party, you know, essentially in his yard. So kind of <laughs> kind of a cool thing. Really interesting talking with Scott about you know trying to figure out you know how he's trying to build a sense of community and build that neighborliness, get that concept back together and bridge people again. And using beard to do that, I thought was just well, it was a really nifty concept. Yep, exactly, man. It was a, a great idea, and uh, hopefully it'll be emulated other places. I agree. So there you go. We'll include links to both We Love Long Beach, Long Beach Homebrews Festival, the Long Beach Homebrews, so that you can catch up on recipes. We'll uh, try and get everything together. And, of course, I mean, look, let's face it. It's always fun to sit down and talk with homebrewers and have a beer. So, guys, if you have more ideas like this, please let me know. It's sometimes harder to actually find homebrew ideas out there than it is pro-brewery ideas. But we always like to talk to homebrewers, so give us a give us a hint. <laughs> yeah, really. We can use all the help we can get. All right. Well, and I think it's time for us to get people on the road. Time to get a quick tip out there. Time to get uh, something other and then vamanos. Yep, I agree. So stick around and we'll be right back to wrap things up here. 
Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's almost time. Uh, you guys may notice we're not doing Q&A because remember, all Q&A episode is coming up here in relatively short order. So you've got to give us your questions. Questions at experimentalbrew.com, podcast at experimentalbrew.com, spoke signals, 626-765-1L. Send me a weaving, you know, make a tapestry with your questions. <laughs> all the questions. Ask us about, go ahead. All the questions, most of the answers. That's right. Ask us about anything. Ask us about beer. Ask us about brewing. Uh, ask us about cars. Ask us about uh, relationships. Uh, we'll have equally bad advice on everything. There you go. And speaking of bad advice, why don't you go ahead and uh, lay out a quick tip there, Denny? <laughs> yeah. This, uh, this quick tip comes from a real-life uh, experience I had recently. Uh, like I was saying, I had brewed a couple batches of my no-tie brown ale before I went in for surgery. Tossed the second one onto the entire yeast cake from the first one because it was in a 10-gallon corny. And uh, actually, I poured out a little bit of the yeast cake, but not much of it. So when it came time to rack, even though I'd cut off the dip tube in the keg about an inch or so, there was a whole lot of yeast and trube in the bottom of the keg. Uh, my good friend Brant, who we've talked about and had on the show before, had come over to help me with the heavy lifting part since uh, he was able to do that and I wasn't at the time. And as I was sitting there cranking up the pressure on the keg to like uh, 60 or 70 PSI in order to blow the uh, the log jam out of it, he said, how about taking out the poppets? So I released the pressure on the keg, took off the keg post and removed the poppet, took off the quick disconnect uh, that I was using to transfer the beer, took the poppet out of there, put it back in, and voila, we had beer flow in just a moment, and it worked great. So uh, please do not discount the fact of disassembling your equipment when things don't work. Yeah, and I'd, I would normally run into this whenever I was dealing with, like, say, transferring a dry hopped beer that I dry hopped in the keg. I learned to do that right around then. The one warning I will tell people is that there are some people who get concerned that when you remove the poppets that you introduce potential for, you know, well, when you, you obviously introduce more potential for drawing more stuff across, but whatever, that's kind of the point here. And then the other one is that uh, I know there are some people who are worried about, you know, possible extra introduction of turbulence and, and the damage that can cause. I'm not so worried about that. I don't, I don't see how that could even be because, you know, the pop it's, it what is, some, it's what some people worry about. I'm not saying that's a real thing. I'm just saying some people say that. <laughs> okay, so if you're worrying about it, uh, save your worry because it's it's uh, useless there. As to uh, drawing across more uh, crap when you do this, I uh, take the quick disconnect off of the receiving end of my transfer tube and blow out all that crap. 
so that I don't get it into the beer. And then I uh, stop the flow, put the quick disconnect back on, and hook that back up to the receiving keg. Absolutely. All right. And now for something other than beer before we get you on the way. You guys know I I read a lot, and I read a lot of uh, – you know, different sorts of fantasy novels and whatnot. And this one was brand new to me. I, I found a recommendation for it the other day, and and lo and behold, I got the book for Christmas. And I'm already mostly done with it. <laughs> uh, and it is a brand new book by a first-time author whose, whose name is Rebecca Roanhorse. And she is a, a Native American and African-American author who's writing a brand new series called The Sixth World. And it is all based around the idea that there was some sort of uh, apocalypse that wiped out a good portion of humanity. And while most of the world really suffered from you know, the damage that was done, the Navajo Nation actually kind of somewhat survived. And as the apocalypse has happened, you know, the gods of old have returned, but so have the monsters of the Navajo world. And you know, Navajo mythology is fascinating. It's really cool. And so she takes all of this mythology and puts it together into a sort of an urban fantasy setup because it follows a main character who is a monster killer and has, you know, sort of special clan powers, you know, that are granted to her, you know, because of Navajo magic. And, you know, really the whole thing is a, a sort of a messed up murder mystery in a really cool landscape. Uh, in some ways, it kind of reminds me back of the days when uh, Tony Hillerman was writing a bunch of books and you always had Tony Hillerman novels out there. And uh, they were all around the Navajo reservation as well. So just a really cool, really different worldview and sort of new take on, you know, the urban fantasy genre. Uh, again, the book is called Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. We'll include a link in the show notes. I'm having great fun with it. And it's one of those really sort of fast paced, you know, uh, read them up, read them up and chew it up uh, type of reads. So. Go for it. Trail of Lightning. Cool. Sounds interesting, man. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. All righty. Thank you all for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website at experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, including the AHA forum. Drew, you can find on the homebrewing subreddit, as well as the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question, and please send in those questions, suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always send us a voicemail or a text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 